And then the part that's been the most difficult to solve is the certainty of capital. You know, if the stock market dives 300 basis points in a day, we're probably going to have less demand. So the certainty of capital is the part that we've been trying to solve. So we do have a bunch of data points we can point to to uh, make an educated guess and a predictive uh, guess on what that capital is going to be. But the certainty for us is much more difficult because we don't have that capital discretionary laying around. It's the investors who are making that choice. What's up, you guys? Connor here from the Self Storage Income Podcast. If you guys are seasoned veterans or you're just getting started, you're going to need experts in your corner. And that's where our incredible sponsors come in. When you guys are looking at property management software for your storage facilities, there's a ton of options out there, but no other option compares to Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is going to be your one-stop shop solution that has an amazing amount of tools that you can deploy at your fingertips to maximize the value of your facility, to operate it more efficiently, more effectively. They have an open API where you can back in almost anything you want. You own your data, and it's just an incredible solution. I can't say enough good things about these guys. Link is in the show notes. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. And I am really excited about today's podcast. A lot of you may have heard of CrowdStreet before. Um, and today, we have Ryan Strub with us, who is the head of commercial investments at CrowdStreet. So I have a lot of questions, and we got a lot of stuff to talk about. So Connor, should we just jump into it? Let's rock and roll, man. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the podcast and uh, kind of primed everything a little bit. So I'm excited to kind of jump into some of these things. Uh, Ryan, how's it going, dude? Doing great. I really appreciate you both having me on here. AJ, thanks for the invite. Uh, and yeah, really excited to uh, to chat through self-storage and you know commercial real estate as a whole. A lot of lot, lot going on right now. So lots of unpack. Yes, there is. Yeah. The past couple of years have been crazy. It's, it's just one thing after another. So yeah, that's going to be great. Why don't you kind of dive in and give everybody just a background, who you are, where you're at? Yeah, you bet. So my name is Ryan Strube. Um, I'm the head of commercial investments at CrowdStreet. I've been with CrowdStreet for about five years now, which a company like CrowdStreet, we always say that's kind of dog years, right? So five, five years um, is definitely feels like I'm an industry vet there right now. Um, prior to joining CrowdStreet, I actually have a unique background. I, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to raise capital on CrowdStreet's marketplace as a sponsor um, prior to moving over. So back in 20, um, you know, 14, 2015, when CrowdStreet was get, just getting started, I worked for a, a real estate merchant banker in Portland. You know, we would raise our, our LP equity from Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, you know, kind of the AEWs, the institutional groups. And then we would syndicate out our GP investments, so kind of the smaller piece uh, to high net worth investors across the country. Uh, so when CrowdStreet got started, that was a very natural fit for us to go find that equity. Um, did three deals with them, very different deals, a multifamily deal, an office deal. Um, and kind of a mixed use development. And after the third one, uh, I called my buddy up, Ian Vermigli, who's uh, the chief investment officer at CrowdStreet and said, there's a, there's a lot more growth where you are than where I am. <laughs> How do I get on board? So I joined about five years ago, um, have, have been working on the investment side with CrowdStreet, but also the capital market side. So I've worked with sponsors trying to you know, find those projects. I've worked on the investment side, analyzing the deals. And then also have the perspective from a sponsor, you know, having been so in the past raising capital with CrowdStreet. So kind of a unique perspective into uh, into this kind of niche space here. Yeah. So I, I've watched as you guys started and grown over the years with um, intense curiosity, as I'm sure most 
did and have when you guys started popping up. Um, and uh, uh, when I say you guys, I mean that business model, right? So why don't you explain to listeners who may not know or may not understand what it is that your business model does um, and uh, right. So and why it came about uh, and where it sits today, because it has definitely changed um, in the last seven years as I've or 10 years since as I've seen this business model. Yeah, happy to do so. So if, if you, you know, flash back 10 years ago, right, when the Jobs Act passed in 2012, that was really what opened the door up for online syndication. Prior to that, the only way that you could raise capital if you were a um, syndicator was to go to friends and family, country club buddies, um, and, you know, kind of cobble together um, checks that were generally in the ballpark of $250,000 at a minimum, right? $250,000 on up. And so as an investor, you were really being siloed into doing deals with one specific sponsor that you had a relationship with who likely did one asset type, right? So maybe it was multifamily deals in one geographic location. So maybe you were investing with a sponsor who did multifamily deals in Denver, but that's really all you could invest in. When the Jobs Act came through and opened up the door for online syndication, um, you know, you still have to be an accredited investor. So someone who has certain net worth and liquidity requirements. Um, but now we're able to, to kind of cobble together um, more investors to raise capital for one project. So our average investment size is about $50,000. The minimum is $25,000. Um, and, you know, we're doing that for investors in who are building a multifamily deal in Florida or a self-storage deal in the Bronx or, you know, an industrial deal in the Enland Empire. And as an investor, you have access to all of those projects, um, you know, through our marketplace. So it's really democratizing uh, the syndication industry uh, as, as a whole is, is really what we're doing. And, you know, 25K, 50K at a time, we're able to raise, you know, 10, 15, you know, 20 million plus. We just had one of our largest raises of all time. And it was well over 35 million. Um, but that's being done in very small increments and providing the investors with the ability to diversify their real estate portfolio um, with smaller yet still, you know, $25,000 isn't a small amount of cap capital, um, but a smaller amount of capital than what you would do in the past. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting landscape. I looked at uh, pretty intently, you know, starting out, uh, one of the things that has been a passion of mine forever um, is opening up the ability for uh, more of what I think you would probably say just normal people, right? And meaning not very affluent, super rich, um, yeah. to get in directly to um, uh, assets, not indirectly, but directly participate in the assets and participation. So I loved looking at uh, these companies and what you guys were doing because it allowed a lot more of that. Uh, once again, to place capital at smaller amounts in uh, to deals. And then maybe instead of, you know, a, a way of to diversify, all sorts of stuff. I, I think it's, it's great. It's a really cool thing. Um, why don't you talk to me about the pros and cons of your model? So what yeah. do you think are the, the pros for the investor, what are the cons? And then from there, I want to shift over to the more the operator side, right? The the actual uh, person doing the deal. 
yeah, so the, I mean, the pros and cons kind of go almost conversely between the investors and the sponsors. Um, you know, so we have two sets of customers, right? We have one set of customers that are actually putting the deals together. And then one set of our customers are the investors who are actually making those investments. Um, and so we have to balance the needs of, of both of them. When, when I think about a deal and, and really any capital source, right? If, if it's us, if it's an LP investor, if it's your friends and family network, it, we always call it the three C's of capital. So there's the cost of capital, there's the control that that capital has, and then there's the certainty of capital. Um, you know, so for us, the, the cost is very competitive within the market. Um, the control rights are extremely uh, generous for the sponsor. And when I say generous, I'm really comparing it to the LP institutional groups like a Goldman, for example, or like an AEW, um, you know, who are going to have strings tied to that, you know, strings attached to that capital, right? You don't just get it and then you don't see that group for another um, you know, a couple of years, you're, you're in constant communication with them. The reporting is there. Um, but, but even more than that, the control rights that those LP investors have are, are very um, burdensome to the sponsors. So they have buy-sell rights. They have the ability to, you know, veto major decisions versus our capital. Uh, we don't instigate that control, right? So if you want to sell a building, if you want to refinance a building, our investors, um, you know, don't have those written rights in the operating agreement to do so or to prevent that from happening. Now, you know, our investors are long-term investors. They make repeat investments. So it's always in the best interest of the sponsor to do uh, what's in the best interest for uh, the, the investor themselves. So we do have some control from that standpoint. We also do negotiate um, our operating agreements or at least help negotiate our operating agreements to make sure that there's not um, what I would call out of market clauses in those. So, you know, erroneous capital calls or anything like that, that could put an investor at risk. We do pay attention to those, but overall our capital um, doesn't have as much control over an LP as an LP investor would. And then the part that's been the most difficult to solve is the certainty of capital. Uh, we're a marketplace. So we put deals on the marketplace and we have a target uh, that we want to raise, but you know, if the stock market dives 300 basis points in a day, we're probably going to have less demand on that day than we would if it if it rose 300 basis points, you know, or 300 points. Um, so the certainty of capital is the part that we've been trying to solve, you know, really since I've been here for the past five years, we've gotten a lot better at it. We have a bunch of data. We've done, you know, almost 700 deals now. So we do have a bunch of data points we can point to to uh, make an educated guess and a predictive uh, guess on what that capital is going to be. But the certainty for us is much more difficult because we don't have that capital discretionary laying around. It's the investors who are making that choice. Um, now that that does bode well for the investor because they are able to, uh, or we are able to get better terms than we otherwise wouldn't be able you know, to get uh, simply because um, you know, we can just say it's not gonna be as attractive to our investor base with this preferred return or this fee structure. So let's negotiate that for our, for our investors. Um, the other part that we've done to really kind of combat that weakness is raising internal funds. So if you're investing on CrowdStreet, you can do so in three different ways. Number one is what I would call kind of the, the a la carte method, which is go to our marketplace, go to crowdstreet.com, go to our marketplace, look through all the deals that we have available, generally somewhere in the ballpark of 10 to 15 options up there at one given time. And you can make an individual investment into an offering that you like. The second way that we raise capital is through private managed accounts. So, you know, an investor says, look, love all the options that you have. 
I don't have the time to read through all of these. Here's my investment thesis. Can you help me build the diversified portfolio that I want to, to achieve? So they'll give us capital and we'll invest that. Essentially on their behalf, they still have control over it, obviously. And then the third method that we raise capital is through our internal funds. And these are usually strategic. So we'll have an opportunistic fund, an opportunity zone fund, you know, something as specific as a Southeastern multifamily fund where we're raising capital from our investors who want that diversification and then putting that into anywhere from, you know, 12 to 24 deals uh, on their behalf. So having some discretionary capital alongside our marketplace capital helps solve that certainty. Um, but out of those three, we're very strong on the cost and the control. The certainty of capital is what we're always, we're constantly trying to work on. Have you had a deal not fund? So, you know, when we look at deals, AJ, we're always making sure that we have that backup option, right? So when we go to the sponsor and we say, look, you're looking for, for 15, we think we can get there, but what happens if we raise 10? You know, do you have other sources of capital that can, um, you know, piggyback onto that to, to still cap, fully capitalize the deal, execute the business plan and, and move forward? Um, so, you know, we always have that, those backup options. Um, but no, we, we, we don't put ourselves in a position where we want to. And it's happened in the past for a variety of reasons, whether the debt didn't fully come in, you know, the, the, something was found out in due diligence. So we have unwound yeah. deals, um, but we're always very conscious about making sure that the deal is going to be fully capitalized, whether we come in with five, 10, 15 million plus. Now, um, on this, uh, for the individuals that are trying to get money and raise uh, money on a platform like yours, what does it look like for the type of people that you would accept? Like, so how does, like, is it just, okay, anybody comes on, I'm going to throw my deal in there. This is how much I, I, I need. What, I mean, how, because you're essentially, you, you're a marketplace. You set up an online marketplace to match those people. So the integrity on both sides is, I'd assume, the most concerning part, right? The integrity of the GP and the LP, right? The money will be there, right? And the guy that we're giving the money to is not going to screw this up, isn't going to waste it, isn't going to lose it, isn't uh, fly by night, is... You know, like, uh, I mean, people say, of course, there's always risks in investment. But even though there is, it's the degree of risk in which you take. And uh, uh, GPs are not all the same. Um, and so how do you guys look at that? If I'm starting out and I'm the one that needs the capital, right? But I need the capital because I don't have the relationships already. I don't have the infrastructure. I don't have that. So then I go to you. Is there a problem that I've never done a deal before? Like, how's that work on that that side of it? That's a great question. That really comes back to the control um, provisions, right? So because we don't have as much control in a deal or our investors don't have as much control in a deal as an LP institutional investor would, it's extremely important for us to vet the sponsors. Um, so when we look at a deal, half of that analysis is really vetting the sponsor itself before we even look at a deal. So what's your track record? Who are the principals? What does your company look like? Do you have the infrastructure to man? I mean, if we're, you know, if we're raising $10 million, you know, $50,000 at a time, that's 200 investors that you're going to be dealing with for the life of that project. And as you know, AJ, these projects aren't 
you know, three, six month endeavors, they're, you know, three, five, 10 year endeavors that you're getting into. So partnering with the right groups is instrumental to the success, uh, not only for our investors, but for CrowdStreet as a whole as well. Um, so we spend a lot of time running background checks, looking at their track record. You know, what have you executed this in the past? Um, and what gives us confidence that you can execute this moving forward? We actually probably decline. Um, I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but it's somewhere between 90 and 95% of the deals that we see as a company do not make it to our marketplace. Um, so, you know, our capital markets team is cutting usually, you know, 70% of the stuff that comes into them um, before they even take it to me to take a look at it. And then our team is cutting, you know, I mean, lately it's been probably more, more than, um, you know, 90%, more than 95% because it's just harder to find a good deal right now. Um, but our investments team is cutting out, um, you know, kind of the rest of that uh, slug. And some deals we want to do and we lose them because there's competing capital or, or something else that comes. But anyways, to circle back to the question, um, we're, we're doing heavy vetting of the sponsors and we put them into four different buckets. This is all on our website. So we're fully transparent about what we do, but we have emerging sponsors who have you know, done about a hundred million dollars um, of deal flow. We really wouldn't look at a sponsor that's done under a hundred million of total cap. Always wanna see a round trip, especially for the asset that we're, that we're looking at. Um, we have seasoned sponsors that are kind of in that you know, 200 to $500 million total capitalization range. Tenured sponsors, which are really 500 million plus. Um, and then we have what we call, we actually had to create a new um, label for this a couple of years ago. We call them enterprise sponsors, which are groups that have done $5 billion plus of historical capitalization. Um, so these are the ones who have been around for you know, decades. We, we actually uh, have a, a sponsor that we've been working with that's been around since 1904. So vetting their track record, obviously you can't go all the way back to 1904 from a record keeping standpoint, um, but can still look at their recent successes and, and get comfortable there. And depending on if you're, you know, more of an emerging sponsor compared to an enterprise sponsor, you know, we're going to have different requirements for the types of deals that we want to do. If you're an emerging sponsor, we want to see, again, if you go to like the multifamily in Denver uh, mentality, we want to see that you've done a bunch of multifamily deals in Denver, and that's really your core focus versus if you're, you know, one of the gray stars of the world. Um, we're obviously more comfortable getting into um, something that maybe your team doesn't have as much experience in, but your company still has the infrastructure to make that, you know, to make that successful. Um, so that's, in, in my opinion, um, you know, one of the, the biggest strengths of CrowdStreet is trying to um, look at those sponsors and, and have confidence in them because ultimately they're the ones who are executing that business plan on our investors' behalf. So um, building that trust up with, with both parties is extremely important. So what does the cost of that capital look like? So as a general partner, right, as the guy putting the deal together, uh, I have capital options. Some may be good, some may be bad, right? What does the capital cost and all, all, all that's included look like when working with you guys? Yeah. So it depends on the size of the project. The more capital that we raise, the more efficient we are, you know, with, with the kind of that cost of capital, but we have an upfront fee that can be, you know, anywhere in the ballpark of, you know, two and a half to three and a half percent. Those are pretty rough numbers. Um, we actually charge on a per investor basis right now. 
So, you know, whether you invest $25,000 or $250,000, we're charging the sponsor the same amount for all of those investors. And that's really a fee to open up an investor portal for that investor to manage their investment. So, you know, if you're an investor and you have 10 deals with CrowdStreet, you can log into your account, um, you know, manage all 10 of your investments in one spot. So it's really, you know, the fee to kind of open up uh, that portal for the investor. And then we also, as, as I mentioned before, if we do a $10 million raise, that's, you know, 200 investors who are coming in um, to that project. So we also charge an ongoing fee to help manage those investors and just make sure that the investment experience for the individual um, is, is going to be top notch, right? You don't want to have uh, someone make an investment and then all of a sudden, you know, you have a passive sponsor who's just not giving you updates. And, and I really think, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, investors want to know where their capital is at and what's happening with it. You know, so even if you, if you're in 2020, um, you know, and, and you're seeing move outs in the office side or, or what have you, investors are fine as long as they understand what's going on. So kind of that transparency. And that's what our technology really helps to enable um, is to communicate with investors quickly, deliver uh, financial reports, quarterly reports, um, you know, tax documents, um, and, and really to send that out in the masses versus, you know, in a one-off communication. Um, so we have both an up, upfront fee and an ongoing fee. What's and the really ongoing what, admin fee look like? Uh, the, uh, the ongoing fee, it, so we actually kind of, um, it depends on how, it's almost like a behavior uh, uh, fee, right? So the better a sponsor reports will give you a discount if you're doing what you say you're going to do. Um, and if you don't, um, you know, then we're going to have that fee higher because it's more work for our team uh, to go through that. And that's usually somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, 60 to 80 basis points in the equity per year. I like that. A, a behavioral fee. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it's about to use the carrot, not the stick, right? Yeah. 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 So as you guys know, we like to partner with people who have been in the self-storage industry for a very long time and people who are not going anywhere, who are going to stay in the self-storage industry. One of those people is Janice International. These guys have been in the self-storage world for a very long time. They're an incredible company with amazing products to help build, to help improve and to help drive value of your self-storage facility. They've got rehabilitation programs like their R3 program. They have a number of technology solutions to help you increase operations and value of your self-storage facility. Be sure to check out the all things self-storage at Janus International. Link is in the show notes. Obviously, one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle when investing in self-storage is funding and financing. Where are you getting your money from? Honestly, I hope you guys are getting it from Live Oak Bank. The people over there are absolutely incredible. They have an amazing team who knows and understands the underwriting of self-storage, the valuation of self-storage. They can work and coincide with you and your team in evaluating a deal, in financing a deal, securing that financing, and actually closing on an amazing deal and an amazing self-storage investment opportunity. Be sure to check them out again, Live Oak Bank. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears and jump into storage specifically. I mean, what are you seeing appetite-wise for self storage specifically, uh, both for sponsors, uh, investors, and what are you seeing in the uh, the self storage industry as a whole? Yeah, because the, yeah. the two sides is interesting. Yeah, right? yeah. Because like we we already know the sponsor side went crazy. So you know we've had just unlimited amount of people jump into the self storage game. 
um, in the last four years, all brand new, raising huge sums of capital, right? So it seems like there was a ramp up of interest in self-storage, right? Obviously, a lot of interest in self-storage due to performance and other things, right? Both on the investor side, but then also on the sponsor side as new people have been coming in. Um, and that appetite obviously dramatically outpaced inventory and everything else. Have you seen this change? Talk to us a little bit about what you guys saw in the self-storage space and if you've seen any fundamental changes. Yeah, so what we've seen, I mean, self-storage has been a really interesting one to follow, especially because it's so hard to acquire a stabilized self-storage facility. Um, you know, when we do a self-storage development, we always plan, you know, it takes a little bit longer to stabilize. The lease up takes longer than an apartment building. But once you get the tenants in there, you know, we really do see quite a bit of rent growth or the ability to keep pushing rents. Because if you've ever rented a self-storage, um, you know, building or, or space, you know, the last thing you want to do is go move all your space to another facility because you're saving $10 per month in rent. So we tend to, we tend to see tenants be fairly sticky there. And because of that, you know, once you develop and stabilize a facility, if you refinance it, you're generally able to return a large portion of your initial equity investment upon that refinance. And the cash on cash returns that you have thereafter are extremely attractive. So we see a lot of institutional groups decide to hold those facilities long-term rather than sell. And because of that, it's really hard to find a high quality um, institutionally owned self-storage facility as an acquisition. So most of the stuff that we end up doing on that side is development. And when I say institutional quality, you know, there was a major shift from kind of the mom and pop owners who would build non-climate controlled, essentially just a bunch of garages, right? Compared to, you know, the newer facilities, which tend to be uh, climate controlled, they have, you know, a lot of times state of the art, um, you know, kind of uh, renting features so that you can do it without having employees on site. Um, and so when we look at an acquisition, it's usually from an older kind of, you know, legacy mom and pop family that isn't pushing rents. I mean, we've, we've seen tremendous rent growth and frankly, tremendous NOI growth um, by acquiring facilities from people who just have been frankly asleep at the wheel, right? So they haven't been pushing rents. They've just been trying to keep their units full. Well, if you come in there and you know take over one of those units, you can not only push the rental rates, but also find a lot of operating efficiency. So we see a lot of NOI growth um, you know, from doing those. We, we did see a spur of development in 2018, really 2017 to 2019. And it took a little bit for some of those units to be absorbed. Um, so we did see, uh, you know, kind of a dip in construction in 2020, 2021, which, you know, obviously the whole market <laughs> had some challenges getting financing in 2020 as, as well. Um, and we, but we do expect to see, if you look at the development pipeline, a lot of units that will be coming online, you know, that are just starting to hit construction um, that will be coming online in 2024, 2025. So um, they're, they're, we're in kind of the sweet spot window where, you know, if you can get your hands on something uh, that is fully stabilized, the high quality product fully stabilized in a good market, um, you're going to see a little bit of a window where you're not going to see that those new products come online for another two years or so. Now, um, how's interest rate changed the landscape? I mean, we've seen developments being canceled like crazy. 
Um, uh, I just heard uh, this morning, this was publicly discussed uh, about KK, uh, KKR, um, who is basically trying to get rid of a portfolio that they had just bought and are willing to take a pretty significant loss um, from the look of it. I And I, I, I don't know, but at the price points they were talking about looked like it was literally eradicating the equity stack. So we're now hearing about sponsors that are in trouble um, and developers that that uh, are going to come up over the next year putting out product uh, that they're refinancing into 8% interest rates when their entire model had been exiting at a four cap on pro forma, right? Um, they're not operators. Now they're taking this huge debt burden on because they can't exit with vacancy at 8%. Um, it's, you know, we're seeing and starting to hear just so much of this going on. With this increased capital, what are you guys seeing on the sponsorship side, both of existing assets? I understand this is just starting to hit, right? People could burn through cash, things like that. Um, and new sponsors coming on board for developments. Is this a struggle for people? Are they coming to you saying, I need capital in this kind of environment? Um, and we just can't either, we can't get our hands on it or the cost is just too much to bear. Yeah. So there's two sides of that coin. Number one is very difficult to get a deal done right now. Um, not only are interest rates rising, but lenders are also pulling back in the yes. number of deals that they want to do, um, but also in the total proceeds. So, you know, if a year and a half ago, two years ago, you know, you went out there and tried to find a, you know, 68% loan to value uh, construction loan or loan to cost construction loan, today you might only be able to get that for 63%, right? So lenders are pulling back the proceeds, which means you need more equity to capitalize that deal because the cost of equity is more expensive than the cost of debt. The returns tend to go down because of that. Um, you know, our, our personal philosophy is we want to make sure that we have enough reserves, right, to get through the execution of that business plan. And that's both in terms of, um, you know, just hedging inflation. So making sure that if the costs do increase from now till we actually finish the project, um, you know, that we have have reserves for that, but then also interest rate reserves. Uh, lenders are going to require uh, larger reserves for, for their projects. And so that, again, means more capital that a project has to take on to execute that business plan. Um, so it's been very difficult from that side. You know, we, we do try to, from that perspective, partner with groups who have been through times like this in the past. So working with the enterprise groups, working with the tenure groups, um, individuals who have done, you know, a billion dollars plus of, of real estate and have those lending relationships uh, to help manage that out is, is really important for us. The other side of that is the distress side that you, that you hinted at. You know, we really thought we were going to see a lot of distressed assets in, you know, kind of mid 2020 with, um, people just not making their their debt service and seeing some foreclosures. That didn't happen. You know, lenders just kind of forgave a lot of those interest rates or, or you know, pushed those out and just had them accrue. Um, you know, now we're looking at 2023, where you do have a bunch of CMBS loans that are going to be coming due. And yep. to your point, it's going to create situations where you, you have a seller who, you know, for lack of a better term, has a gun to their head in terms of having to sell. And so we think that's actually going to create a lot of opportunities to purchase, um, you know, from groups like that. So 
you know, our portfolio thing. We hope so. We're raising a lot of money for yeah. it. So. <laughs> yeah. You got to put it somewhere, right? You might as well do it in the right spot. So yeah, yeah. we're literally launching our opportunistic fund in like two weeks. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I was around a, um, after 08 and right when COVID hit, we had this like three month gap. Right. Remember when it was like three months when the market shut down, it was like the CMBS market and everybody started to like halt. Banks started to pull back and it was like this little window. But then the government rushed in. Right. There, there was there was support there to yes. help avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. Which, so we, we I don't think it's going to happen in 2023. You're not going to. I don't think that's going to happen either because it's, <laughs> you can't get the support when the reason you have the problem is because of the support. Right. right. So. <laughs> it's a good way to say it. <laughs> No, I think that's, I, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. So I hope there's opportunity. Mm. Um, now, if you, but look at somebody looking into this, I mean, I think a lot of people starting out, they may go, I feel almost overwhelmed right now because when you're looking at a deal, I need, you have your three components, right? As you guys know, you have the operator, you have the capital, right? And then you have the execution part of it, right? So when we, or excuse me, not the execution, the deal. So you have the deal, the operator, and the capital. At the end of the day, these are the three fundamentals, okay? So you can choose and say, all right, a lot of people starting out say, I could go with a third-party manager or operator, um, and, or I'm going to do it myself, right? We have smaller deals, things like that. And deal flow may increase, which we think is probably going to happen. Why? Because we've seen a 50% increase in deal flow in the last 30 days. Now, we've also seen the highest ratio of deals that we would never touch right. in the last 50 days. So it's not right. like, it's like, we just got great it's deals. Not like this, out all the good deals are showering down upon you. It's yeah, exactly. You them. It's like 14 million. We're like, eh, we're at seven. Right. Uh, so, but um, as deals come through, I know like people that are listening to this podcast, I know guys like you, your market makers, right? It's you want, we want to make this market. People want to get into the game. And a lot of people recognize that there's opportunity on the deal side, right? But as I tell people, if there's opportunity on the deal side, that means there's problems on the execution side, meaning capital, right? As in right now, um, I, I view people like, like marketplaces like yours can be a bridge. It can bridge over a lot of these gaps for operators or people looking into it as a piece of that financing, maybe not t all of it, right? So what would you look on the capital side? What are alternative ways? And what do you see people doing that are, when you want to get creative, like, do you have debt funds, right? Do you, do you split it up? Like, what are you seeing? And what should people thinking be thinking about on that capital side over the next eight months? They may have deals. I may be able to operate or I can get an operator or whatnot. I can execute. But this capital side, right, is tough. And you guys play a big role in, in, in that part of, of a market on the capital side that's an alternative that didn't exist really 10 years ago. Yeah, so the the main way that we saw, that we see people trying to solve the capital issue, I mean, if you think about, you use the word bridge, right? So we see a lot of what I call bridge capital, not from a length standpoint, but from a mezzanine or, or prep equity standpoint. Um, so the easiest way to try to fill, you know, if you lost, $5 million in senior loan proceeds from a deal that you've been working on for a couple of years. The most common way that we see sponsors try to backfill that is through either prep equity or, or MES financing. 
Um, you know, because more people want that financing, it's supply and demand, it's gotten more expensive. So we're seeing, you know, just like interest rates are going up, we're starting to see uh, those pref equity rates and those MES rates also go up accordingly. Um, so we do see that as, as one way to solve it. And then quite frankly, we have been a little bit of a beneficiary of this because if you're looking for a seven to, you know, $12.5 million slug, um, CrowdStreet's pretty competitive in that space. So, you know, we have seen more deal flow um, for opportunities like that, where they're just trying to raise the last portion of their equity. You know, maybe they have a family office in for a few million dollars. They have their own network in for a few million and they need us to come in and, and help out. So we have looked at, um, you know, opportunities that we probably wouldn't have got a, a chance to look at in the past uh, yeah. for that exact reason. The, the part that we look for when we look at, you know, kind of that bridge equity and really the capital stack as a whole is just making sure that there's not what I would call desperate capital in there. So, you know, you get someone who's putting on, um, you know, a high octane mezzanine loan um, that when you, you know, kind of sensitize the pro forma, you just kind of realize like the only way that we're going to get out for this is selling the asset. Like we're not going to actually end up covering debt service. Uh, even if we get the stabilization. So the only way to solve it is, is selling. And those are the types of deals that we try to stay away from. Um, you know, we want to make sure that even in a downside scenario, we have the ability to cover debt. Uh, I think the last thing you want to do is be forced to sell something uh, or refinance at a bad time because you weren't capitalized correctly from, from the onset. So we're extremely cognizant of that. We look at that um, on every deal that, that we that we run through and just make sure that um, the deal is capitalized effectively. And look, sometimes it's okay to put MES or, or PREF on, um, but not all of those providers are the same. Some of them um, you know, are, are more um, focused on quite frankly, like having you default and in, in taking over your position. Um, so you have to- lending is big right now. Predatory lending is, is huge right now, and it, as it should be, if you're in that business, like this is a great time is, yeah, to try to find those happen. opportunities. Um, so we, we really try to make sure we understand not only what the terms are of those loans, but also who is the lender. Uh, you can really tell a lot about a group um, and, and what they're going to do if times get bad based on you know, what they've done in, in the past, too. So that's important to us. Yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 what you've been talking about here, I think a lot of people need to understand is you've got to get creative on that capital stack. So I think a lot of people got fat and happy with, you know, on, for the storage side, 30% down in a loan that I could get from any bank, right? And that's all I needed. The equity came in at 30%, whatever, friends and family. Maybe I even got bridge debt, so I didn't even have to put 30% down. But essentially, it was a one loan type deal, um, and it was easy, right? Banks would give and it, they liked the asset, it was cheap, so nobody was worrying about defaulting because of where uh, it was so cheap, there was just so much cash flow, and uh, that situation's gone now, right? So it's like that capital stack, I like what you said by not just the means, so not just, okay, maybe family office, maybe we're doing private money, maybe we've got a bank, maybe we're doing crowdfunding, maybe we're doing you know these different other aspects of it, but also who? Who is making up this capital stack right now? Right. Who are the people in it? Because the more complicated that capital stack gets, the more you risk contagion, right? 
So the more you start to risk uh, one person in the capital stack, right? If something goes wrong, how's that gonna play out with three different partners? Um, and I think that's sound advice, but also people there, you gotta look at alternative options. What worked does not work today. And I would piggyback on that a little bit too. So, you know, when I talked about the relationships of some of these larger groups that we've partnered with, um, you know, they have multi-year relationships with these banks and they're working on multiple projects with them. So it's more likely that they're going to be able to find a workout solution than if you're a new operator yeah. and this is your first deal with, with a bank, they have, you know, much less incentive to find a way to work this out in your favor than if you have that deep, that deep relationship. So it's not only who, who the lender is, but what relationship do they have with that GP, with that operator? Exactly. You're a hundred percent right. Um, awesome, man. Well, first of all, I think what you guys are doing over there is it, beyond the fact that it's super intriguing. Um, I, I think it's great. I think it's a, a wonderful alternative that is needed. Uh, everybody, you should go check it out. Crowd Street, um, really, really cool. Uh, what you guys uh, got going on, and we'll thank you so much. For links in the here. show notes for everybody. yes, yeah, so absolutely. I really appreciate the conversation. It's always fun to, um, you know, look, we're we're all in in unique times right now. So yes, uh, I think one of the benef- benefits that we have at Crowd Street is we have so many sponsors that we're talking to. Um, they're all very, you know, uh, gracious with their time and just to jump on and and chat through the stuff that we're talking about right now. So uh, not only do you get that on the sponsor side, but to have this conversation with you uh, for your investor base too, I think it just adds some unique perspective. Um, not all deals are created equal. And, and right now it's really right. hard to find, uh, you know, that that uh, diamond in the rough, that needle in the haystack. So I uh, really appreciate the conversation and really appreciate you having me on, AJ. Hey, you too. Absolutely, it, uh, man. If somebody wanted to reach directly out to you, do you, is there something that you would like us to add in the show notes, anything else aside from just CrowdStreet? Yeah. So, I mean, the best place to go for all of our resources, and we have a great education center on our website too, yeah. is CrowdStreet.com. You can see our marketplace. You can see all of our educational pieces. We have a bunch of stuff on self-storage, you know, banking in general. If you yeah. want to reach out to me, I'm more than happy to uh, to, to do so. It's ryan.strube. It's R-Y-A-N dot S-T-R-U-B as in boy at crowdstreet.com. Um, so yeah, that'd be easy way to reach, reach out to me there. Hey, wonderful. Great, Thanks. Man. We'll send everybody your way and have that in the show notes. And uh, look forward to talking to you again. Appreciate it, man. Like, likewise. Thanks, AJ.